Are you ready to experience the rich interconnection of spirituality, orientation, and identity? If so, plan to attend Liberating Your Divine Identity, a retreat at Unity Village during Pride Month, June 9th to the 12th. This soul-filled retreat is facilitated by LGBTQIA plus Unity Ministers with workshops and ceremonies to cultivate a deeper awareness of our spiritual nature. Register at unityvillage.org forward slash I am divine 2022. Discover the power within. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, offering insights and practices for spiritually consciously living today. Here's your host, Yogacharya, Ellen Grace O'Brien. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, where we explore yoga, philosophy, and practice in its depth and breadth as a path to spiritually conscious, fulfilled living in our world today. I'm Yogacharya, Ellen Grace O'Brien, and today our topic is creative imagination, a vision of hope for our troubled times. We're look at how can imagination possibly be spiritual practice and I I couldn't be more delighted with the timeliness of our topic today and um, to be able to welcome back Zen priest Norman Fisher. Um, Norman Fisher is a poet, an author, and Zen Buddhist priest. For many years he's taught at the San Francisco Zen Center, the oldest and largest of the new Buddhist organizations in the West, where he served as co-abbot from 1995 to 2000. He's presently a senior Dharma teacher there, as well as the founder and spiritual director of the Everyday Zen Foundation, an organization dedicated to adapting Zen Buddhist teachings to Western culture. Today, we're discussing his most timely, uh, amazing book, The World Could Be Otherwise, Imagination and the Bodhisattva Paths. You can find out more about Norman Fisher at his websites, everydayzen.org and Norman Fisher, and that's F-I-S-C-H-E-R.org. Welcome, Norman. I'm so delighted um, that you're back with me on the Yoga Hour today. Nice to talk to you again. It's sweet to be back. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you. Um, And I've been uh, reading Norman's book on this vision of hope for our troubled times, and it just couldn't be. Of course, he was written. It was written before the current uh, situation with the pandemic. But you know, we've been living in troubled times for a while, so it is even more poignant um, to explore this topic today. But before we dive in, let's just take a moment to center ourselves a meditative moment, a yoga moment, wherever you are. Let's open our hearts and our minds to the infinite. One life, one power, one presence surrounding us, indwelling us. taking a good deep breath and letting it out and simply noticing the feeling of the breath. Feel your body in space, 
whether you're sitting or standing or walking, become aware of your body. And perhaps bring in some gratitude for that body as the precious vehicle it is in this lifetime. Become aware of your breath. Feel the breath in the body. Feeling of air entering your nostrils. And moving out again. Feel your lungs filling with air, your abdomen rising and falling. A sweet, gentle breath. And with your next breath, feel as if you could just draw your attention within and drop down into the quiet center of your being. It's a center of awareness. You simply notice whatever is arising in your awareness as if you could sit in that place of stillness within, noticing thoughts as they arise and pass, perceptions in your environment, moving and changing as you sit in that place of conscious awareness, stillness, Whenever we can touch that stillness within, we can find peace within us, even if it is for a few seconds. Just a little bit of peace goes a long way, and we can use our imagination to expand it to imagine or feel that peace pervades our mind, our bodies. Peace extends through us into our families, our community. Peace pervading the whole world. Peace pervading the whole universe. And let us offer that peace now, just with our prayer that all beings may experience peace and freedom and well-being. As I mentioned uh, when we began, I have been reading Norman Fisher's uh, latest book, um, The World Could Be Otherwise, and of course it's such a captivating title, 
<laughs> and the subtitle Imagination and the Bodhisattva Path. And um, Norman, your book was released in 2019 uh, prior to the global pandemic situation we're experiencing right now. And, um, you know, as I have just currently been reading the book, I, I just have been so struck by the importance uh, of the topic and the practices for this time, um, in a sense that is unimaginable, that we find ourselves in, and what kind of tools do we have to um, face it? So, um how has your view of this topic, the world could be otherwise, um, you know, been impacted by our current situation? Well, uh, the book was, was originally written uh, in the face of what felt to me like a crisis already. Um, the uh, confusion and divisiveness uh, in our government, uh, the uh, proliferation of, you know, the drumbeat of, of news, half of which was, you know, fake news and making you doubt whether or not uh, a real democracy was possible in this sort of post-industrial age. Uh, the uh, And most especially, for me, the environmental problem that yeah. we were... Exactly, and the disparity. Uh, yeah, we were putting all this carbon into the atmosphere, and the rate of increase was was going up and up and up, and there was really nothing whatsoever being done about it, and the national conversation didn't even include that mm. as something to talk about. We were talking about all kinds of other stuff, and, and this really very, very bad thing that was going to impact our lives and most especially the lives of our children and grandchildren and their children, we were not even thinking about this. So there was a feeling in the air, to me, very unmistakably, of, of crisis that's only, of course, increased now. Right. And in a way, uh, the crisis behind the coronavirus crisis is still, is still there. And, and in, in some sense, uh, this new crisis, because it stops everything, Mm -hmm. You know, my, my worry was how are we ever going to get anywhere if we're so addicted to our speedy, affluent mm -hmm. lifestyle collectively that we can't stop for a minute? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have found the connection between the environmental crisis and the pandemic to be, you know, inescapable, yeah, uh, inescapable. in terms of just, you know, feel that pause that we're in right now and the earth. Um, responding in, you know, positive ways. Um, and I think, you know, f for many of us, you know, myself included there, just living at that speed, um, there's a way in which, you know, from my tradition, I would say that the soul um, ha was left out of the equation. You know, yeah. we're running around the earth, flying around, even, you know, as a as a uh, yoga teacher, as a Dharma teacher, you know, to be flying around the world um, was really not the best thing. 
And so um, I've been thinking about that for some time. And now, of course, I'm grounded thinking about it in a much more profound way. So I I am grateful for that. And of course, you know, not grateful for the suffering, the profound suffering that's going on. And I think that's where, you know, I found so much heart in your book. And and your book begins with this uh, beautiful story um, that that leads us into this um, potential of imagination Um, This is a story of Robert Desnos, um, French surrealist poet um, who was Jewish and and, and his one of the stories about him and it's so profound. Could you tell us that story? Sure. Yeah, it opens the book, as you say, and and it sets the frame for the power of imagination. And uh, so uh, Desnos was fighting in the French resistance. And as you say, he was Jewish. So when he was uh, captured, he was sent to the concentration camps, to the death camps. And so uh, the the story begins with Desnos, with a bunch of other prisoners being loaded onto the truck from the barracks on the way to the extermination centers. And uh, nothing is said, but of course they know where they're going, and they're very, very silent and somber in the truck. When they arrive at the destination, they're very silent and somber as they as they disembark from the truck. The guards, also knowing what this is about, are quiet, and they're marched single file across a wide uh, open space. Uh, and all of a sudden, one of the people in the line seems to have a thought that makes him happy, and he spins around and grabs the palm of the hand of the man behind him and starts looking deeply into the man's palm, and, and it turns out he's reading his palm. He's a palm reader, and this is Desnos. And overjoyed, he says to the man, what a wonderful future you have. You're going to have a family and wonderful children and a beautiful career and lots of traveling. And I can't believe I've never seen such a long and firm lifeline. And of course, the man is totally astonished by this, as as is everyone else in the line. They don't know what to make of it. And one by one, they start putting their hands out, and Desnos is reading everybody's palm, and, and, and everyone has the same kind of prediction for long life and happiness and prosperity and creativity. And everybody's now all of a sudden, the mood sh- totally shifts from this somber, kind of almost horrified mood to one of delight and joy and excitement, and they're all you know smiling and laughing and clapping each other on the back. And the guards are watching this, and they do not know what to make of it. And the normal, which a moment ago had prevailed, the normal in which you march people to ovens, uh, to uh, showers, and you turn on the shower and they're dead and they're burned, that was normal. That normal is now shattered, and a whole new reality that didn't exist a moment ago has opened up. And the guards are completely confused by this because their idea of what was real and what was true has been shattered, and they're confused. They don't know what the hell to make of this 
event. <laughs> so they look at one another and they shrug their shoulders and not knowing quite what's happening, they direct the men to get back onto the truck. The truck turns around, goes back to the barracks, and Desnos and these people were never executed. They were actually liberated after the war and never executed. And uh, so that's an amazing it's such a beautiful story, story and I and I really um, appreciated how in, in the book you share, you know, you'd come across this story, and then the first impulse, of course, is to wonder, well, was it true? Yeah. Right. <laughs> Right. And, you know, searching it down, you know, and you, you did some research to mm -hmm. just, you know, find out, well, was it true? And um, I really like that question and how it so powerfully leads into this um, bigger context of, you know, uh, I was thinking of what Joseph Campbell would call myth or, you know, yes. where... Um, exploring as imagination. So tell us about that step, about that leap, um, kind of starting with this story of, you know, is it true? Yeah. Well, it made me reflect on how uh, there is a kind of truth, a human truth in the imagination that is essential for our survival as, as whole human beings. We need our, our myths and our stories and our imaginative practices to uh, give us hope and strength. You know, we live in such a scientific, materialistic age that we tend to think that the only thing that is real is, uh, you know, facts on the ground. And we don't appreciate how much we are always depending on our imagination to create a world. And so um, this story, uh, in the end, I conclude that, well, we can't know exactly whether it's true because there are no written accounts and everyone who was there is probably gone by now. But there is an imaginative truth to the story that we need to be able to tell. Mm. And, you know, I don't say this in the book, but it occurs to me that even if the soldiers did not do what they did, but instead led them on to their deaths, had they gone to their deaths with this thought in mind, their lives were long and, and joyful, that still would have been a story of triumph and hope. You know, yeah. I, I, this is a story that has not been told about the Holocaust, but I have no doubt in my mind that there were many, many uh, religious Jews who died in the Holocaust, who died joyfully, who died mm -hmm. with a fervent belief that they were returning to their maker, you know, that, mm -hmm. that there was a meaning mm -hmm. uh, and a, a, a beauty in their deaths. Now, somebody might say, well, that's that's crazy, you know, that's, that's uh, you know, some kind of misplaced faith. But mm -hmm. how would you want to go if you had okay. to go in that way? Would you, and, you know, and we can say, you know, ourselves at the time of our passing, how do we want to face our last moments? With what state of mind do we want to face our last moments? 
Exactly. And what is the importance of state of mind? And, you know, of course, one of the powerful things that you're setting up in in the book is how imagination is essential to take us out of that locked in mindset, you know, of um, the materialistic consciousness and that our spiritual journey actually depends on imagination, you know, which is such a paradoxical kind of thing for us to grapple with um, because we have a um, coming, you know, out of the scientific age, um, there is this kind of natural um, splitting off of imagination as, you know, uh, something that is quote unquote, not real. And, um, so you do a beautiful job with exploring, um, you know, what imagination is, why it's important to the spiritual life. And, um, I really appreciated that the, the clarity with which you express, look, you know, if you're on an enlightenment journey, it has to begin with imagination. <laughs> you, yeah. you have to begin, you have to begin considering what is possible for a human being and that it's possible for you. But talk to us a little bit more about imagination itself, you know, kind of why, why it's suspect, you know, it certainly can be a force for good, but it also can be um, a negative force. So uh, tell us about imagination. Well, in the book, I try to trace, uh, in Western thought, the concept of the imagination. As you say, right now we have a very limited concept. Imagination is fantasy, unreal, things we make up, you know, and on the, in contrast to the world of material uh, that is real. Society and material reality is real, and uh, <laughs> the rest is imaginary. <laughs> and the imaginary is unreal. Fact, and of course, uh, in yoga, you know, the, the, the primary thing that we point to is that we have it backwards. Right. right. <laughs> so, so please. In Western yeah. thought, uh, there was, yeah, like even going back to Plato, you know, Plato actually had the opposite idea. Plato thought, and this is the beginning of Western thought, Plato thought that this world, this material world, couldn't possibly be real. Because... Mm-hmm. Everything passed away. Everything was impermanent and passing away. There must be something more real than this that was behind this. And it was the job of philosophy and contemplation to find that reality behind the passing show of the everyday reality. So Plato actually had exactly the opposite idea about imagination. He thought the imagination, in effect, was the only thing that was real and that the world itself couldn't possibly be real. And this is the beginning of Western thought. And then later on, um, jumping ahead many centuries, um, the philosopher Kant in Germany, who was the beginning of German idealist philosophy, which influenced the whole world, he realized that the world we're living in, literally, the sky and the earth, is partly the creation of the stuff that's there, of the sky and the earth, but also partly the creation of pre-existing structures in our own minds. Mm. That uh, we are, you know, it's really true. Uh, An ant walking across your desk right now is literally living in a different world 
than the world you and I live in. Mm-hmm. And so every organism has within it a structure that creates a world. So we are, with our imaginations, in effect, cooperating with material material reality to create a world. Mm-hmm. So imagination is part of what we need to live in the world we live in. And so my argument here is that since this is so, we have to ask ourselves, are we creating the world that is sustainable and beautiful enough for us? We have a heart that can imagine, you know, love mm-hmm. and human perfection. Do we want to uh, abandon those ideals and uh, settle for a much more dark, imaginative world? No, we should cultivate mm-hmm. our idealism. And that's to me and what that's that's really, I think, the uh, yearning that we feel, you know, coming on to the spiritual path. You know that the world as we have thought it to be is. Uh, unsatisfactory (laughs) it's it's disappointing it cannot uh give us you know what we want and um so to to look into this nature of reality and and to own up to the power of our imagination is is um such a an important practice, you know, really for all time, considering that it is just fundamental to our life, you know, to hold it up, you know, to hold up a light, shine this light on um, how imagination is continually um, uh, forming our, our lives and our experience and our world. And particularly now in this vulnerable time, you know, when during the pandemic and, you know, right now, in April of 2020, we're on a great pause. You know, this is a great pause. And we're about to see what happens when people start moving back into a time of activity. And um, I can't see um, so much more important than imagining, you know, what kind of uh, future we want to step towards and um and of course your book is about not only the imagination but its connection to the bodhisattva path so when yeah. we um come back from the break um i want to dive into you know well, what is a bodhisattva and what does that have to do with imagination and you know how can that uh support us um at in this time I think we're getting ready to go for a break in uh, just a moment. So um, you are listening to the Yoga Hour with our guest, Norman Fisher, who is a Zen Buddhist priest, poet, and author of the book, The World Could Be Otherwise, Imagination and the Bodhisattva Path. Find out more about Norman Fisher at his websites, everydayzen.org and normanfisher.org. And we'll be right back with you. Practical Spirituality Positive Messages This is Unity Online Radio The Voice of an Awakening World 
You're listening to The Yoga Hour, living the eternal way with your host, Yogacharya, Ellen Grace O'Brien. Welcome back to The Yoga Hour. I'm here today with Norman Fisher. He is a Zen Buddhist priest, former co-abbot and now senior Dharma teacher at the San Francisco Zen Center. He's a well-known and accomplished poet and the author of several books, including the one we're focused on today, The World Could Be Otherwise, Imagination and the Bodhisattva Path. Um, in the first segment, you know, we were exploring this, uh, the potential of imagination and how it's critical to our worldview and our world experience and, of course, progress that, that we hope to make. Um, and in your book, Norman, there is the connection that you have made between imagination and the bodhisattva um, path. Um, so please tell us about... Um, what uh, what is a bodhisattva and how does that connect with imagination well the bridge is the thought that imagination is not just something that we have it's something that can be cultivated it can be extended it can be developed and uh that for each one of us uh, that's something we ought to undertake we ought to develop and strengthen our imaginations. So the Bodhisattva is a spiritual practitioner whose main goal is understanding life at its depth with an altruistic spirit, wanting to be of benefit to others, making benefit to others the centerpiece of their effort to understand life. So that is uh, an imaginative vision that one can have for one's own life. I want to be a bodhisattva. I want to be someone who is pursuing the truth altruistically, that my love and support and benefit for others is part and parcel of my search for truth. And so uh, this is what a bodhisattva is, and you can see that it's an inherently an imaginative uh, notion that it's, it's something that I envision myself to be and I commit myself to be. And then the bulk of the book, as you know, is uh, the traditional Buddhist path of six practices uh, to cultivate and strengthen the imaginative bodhisattva path. Uh, the practices uh, of uh, generosity, uh, ethical conduct, patient forbearance, uh, joyful effort, meditation, and transcendent wisdom. And these are practices that can be developed and cultivated over a lifetime so that we can reconfigure and reconceive of our lives as a path of cultivating the Bodhisattva heart for the benefit of others through these six practices. And in, in the book, I, I give a chapter to each of the practices, and I suggest many ways at the end of each chapter there are practices, ways to cultivate and extend our practice of these six. So I think, you know, nowadays we really, really need this, you know, because otherwise, what do we have? We have the imaginative path that is defined for us by the newspapers and the, and the fighting online and the, and the mm -hmm. bad news cycle. That's mm -hmm. our world, you know, if we don't take it in hand 
and decide that we're going to uh, change our minds, really, and live in a different world and cultivate our imagination. So that's the argument of the book. Yeah, and it's a beautiful argument. And there's also, of course, this um, fundamental crux point about the bodhisattva path. And um, I have always found it to be, uh, it makes perfect sense to me, and it's intriguing. because, you know, there's this whole um, philosophical argument, so we say, about, well, does one pursue enlightenment um, for one's own self in order to experience freedom? Or does one do that, you know, in a sense, um, for the benefit of all? And um, I have... You know, I've not seen those to be in conflict, um, but of course, there's an ancient philosophical conflict about that, um, and and I think that if you're on the yoga path um, or the Buddhist path, whatever you want to call your path, and you know, there is the danger of um, becoming too narcissistic, you know, too yeah, self-absorbed. Yeah. Um, that, you know, I, I need to get myself together. I need to be, uh, liberated. I need to find freedom. Um, and so there's that. And then the other part of it, of course, is going into it with the idea that you're going to help others and, you know, somehow not focused enough on, um, your own, uh, work that you have to do. So, um, it's a very interesting, um, yeah, it, it is. And, and from the Buddhist uh, perspective, and I'm sure this is true in all traditions when you go into them, there actually is no conflict there because true self-knowledge and true self-understanding, which is liberative, always involves one's recognition that you are nothing but love and caring for others. That is what we are. And that to uh, see ourselves in any other way is, in the end, to have more smallness and more suffering. Well, I simply know it from my own experience because I I came to the um, practice of Kriya Yoga thinking, great, you know, I can escape um, suffering (laughs) in my life (laughs) and the world and, you know, go into the cave of my own um, enlightenment and I found that um, that the connection to the rest of the world became so much more profound through yeah, that exactly. inner journey. So it it didn't take me out of the world, but it brought me into the world with a different understanding and you know much um, more profound connection and. Um, it's it's beautiful that you of course include these um, practices, and um, I'd like to just touch on the because the the paramitas is, is referred to as perfection, and that's another troubling uh, concept for yeah. us. So, um, what the heck, perfection? <laughs> Tell us about that. Well, uh, I talk in the, I talk in the book about uh, binocular vision. So on the one hand, uh, we have imaginations that can conceive of perfection, that can conceive of paradise in in a perfect human world. 
and uh, that's part of us that we want to affirm. But uh, if then we're dissatisfied with everything because it doesn't measure up to our perfection, then that very vision of perfection becomes painful for us. So binocular vision is keeping our eyes on our aspiration uh, to be a kind and wise person on the, with one eye, and with the other eye, a very realistic, if uh, kind, but realistic view of how we are actually doing and who we actually are. So we're not there yet. We're not perfect bodhisattvas, but we aspire to be. So with one eye, we see our aspiration, and with the other eye, we see our conduct today. And when we see with both eyes, we have you know, depth perception, and we can see how uh, our imperfect conduct of today is part of the path toward our perfect conduct that is there in the horizon of, of a future beyond ourselves. So in this way, we can put these things together, and, and we don't have to be perfectionists you know, and beat ourselves up with our, our, uh, our shortcomings, but enjoy our shortcomings as part of the path. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a beautiful way to think of it. And, you know, there's the difference between egoic um, perfection, the egoic view of perfection, and the yes. spiritual view of perfection. And yes, exactly. um, I know I, I remember this being so painful for me early on in the path because, you know, when you start practicing, um, one of the things that happens is you become more and more aware of where you fall short. Yes, right. have the you know you have these aspirations first, right. and and then you see what a mess you are <laughs> and i got so angry you know i thought well this is supposed to be helping me and i'm just getting worse and worse and right. um, and right. then my um the insight that came was it it wasn't about you know egoic perfection, but the perfection that the spiritual journey was about was authenticity. Right. And um, that was a different thing, you know, which I yeah. think uh, speaks to that um, binocular vision that you're talking about. Yes, I think that's Beautiful. Right. That's yeah, being able yeah. to hold both. You um, Now, you begin with the first of the paramitas with generosity and um you, you know, you'd, you'd think maybe it would begin with, with wisdom or something, but so what about this? How does, why does it begin with generosity? Well, uh, in its most expansive form, uh, the generosity in the Bodhisattva path is the acknowledgement of the inherent generosity, permissiveness, and openness of life itself. So uh, this is something that we often miss because our vision is so constricted by our self-interest. From the point of view of self-interest, the world is not always generous. You know, I'm not always getting exactly what I want, so I don't see the world as generous. But when you put aside self-interest and really appreciate the world, uh, you can be overwhelmed, as you well know, with a feeling of gratitude you wake mm-hmm. up in the morning and the world is there for mm-hmm. you. You know, the sky is there and the earth is there and the sea is there. And the world is, is uh, given, you know, why does there have to be any world at all? Why isn't there nothing? But no, there's every blade of grass and every leaf on every tree. Mm-hmm. And this is in you. 
as well as uh, outside of you. So the practice of generosity is the beginning of the path because you, you cultivate through specific practices a vision of the givenness and the generosity of life and of the world. Mm-hmm. And I think during this pandemic time now, that is actually one of the awarenesses that is arising, hopefully more profoundly in the collective consciousness, um, you know, as we look at, you know, things like threats to the food chain. Yeah. Um, there's a a greater a sense of oh you know the people who are um, farming and who are picking the food and who are transporting it you know all of that um, that you know so often remains uh, out of our view is is really um, you know if we're awake it's right there in our awareness right now. Yeah. And and one of the things we were talking before about altruism versus spiritual selfishness. One of the things that's going on now is it becomes very obvious that my protecting myself from this illness is my also protecting others, right? Because mm-hmm, if I get mm-hmm. sick, then my wife gets sick. Mm-hmm. And people that I am close to get sick. And mm-hmm. if I go out and put a mask on, it's not only because I don't want to catch the virus, but it's also because if I'm asymptomatic and have the virus, I don't want to give it to others. Yeah, and it's interesting that the kind of masks that, you know, are prescribed for the general public are not ones that really protect us, but they protect others. And um, so I find that to be a very profound statement, you know, going out into the world with one on. And, um, yeah, it's... uh, it's an interesting time, an interesting lesson. And, and, and of course, you, in, in approaching generosity in, in the book, you, you talk about how it, it's more than just the awareness of this interconnection and the generous nature of uh, life itself, but it actually is a practice that we have to exactly. cultivate. So um, how do we do that? Well, uh, I... Among many other recommendations, uh, I give the uh, very simple uh, practice of cultivating it in meditation, as you were doing uh, when you opened with a meditation that that included uh, gratefulness, that included uh, feeling uh, the world that's given to us with gratitude. So that can be something that you intentionally bring up in your meditation practice. You, you sit and you breathe and then you bring calmness to the mind and then you remember uh, that the world is given to you and that you're grateful for it and you, you can even uh, have a gratefulness list, you know, of, of things that you want to remember to be grateful for, perhaps people in your life, perhaps things that you have been uh, given to know or, or to understand. And you review uh, these things in your mind intentionally in meditation practice, and you strengthen them so that uh, you don't forget about them. They're, they're there always for you in the back of your mind because you've been uh, cultivating them on a daily basis. So mm-hmm. gratitude is uh, the practice of generosity, the recognition you know, of the generosity of the world, and it's something that you can cultivate on a daily basis. You could even have something like, you know, a gratefulness journal or something like that. You know, many ways that you can um, bring the thought of gratitude and generosity of the world 
to mind on a daily basis. And I, I think it's just natural for us, uh, you know, really, as you uh, were mentioning about the connection of taking responsibility and protecting others that, you know, with this very profound sense of the interconnection of people everywhere around the world during this time, you know, we naturally want to benefit others because it's, it's come up in technicolor that the well-being of people um, near to us and in other parts of the world is inseparable from our own well-being and um that is a great is a great gift of this time if we if we can call it that yes and and in in the past you know when there were pandemics because human history is uh full of pandemics they happen a lot Uh, in the past uh, people were isolated in their own little enclaves and didn't really know much what was going on in other places so it was easier then to blame other people or you know think that they infected us with the plague or something like that. Uh, now, even though that tendency in human beings is still there and there are people who still think that way, it's much more difficult to think that way because the whole world is open to us. We see, we can be through video, you know, inside an Italian hospital that's mm-hmm. full of people right. who are sick. We can be on the streets of Rome. We can be, uh, you know, in China, we can be in Thailand, we can be, we can actually feel that people all over the world are part of us and part of our family, and we can feel that we're in this pandemic together, and what any one of us does influences all the others. So that's a new consciousness that technology has, with all of its disadvantages, has brought about. So uh, in that sense, this pandemic is really drawing us together as one world, I think, in a way that we never have been before. So that's really quite something to behold, don't you think? I I absolutely do. It's just, um, it's heartbreaking and uh, in both the sense of suffering and in the positive sense of, you know, having the heart break open and you see what's happening to people all over the world. And, you know, you just feel that um, profound uh, connection that we have. Um, I'm so enjoying our conversation and I'm I'm looking at my list and I know we're not going to get to the six (laughs) perfections. Um, So, you know, you just may have to come back if you're willing, but... um, (laughs) As I'll, I'll we, come back. You know, yes, that'd be good. <laughs> thank you. Yes, we, thank you. It's fun. Yes, we look at the at the list. The next on the list is uh, ethical conduct, and in some ways, we've we've touched on that a bit. Uh, um, but um, let's let's raise it up um, in terms of you know how does uh, imagination come into play um, with with this uh, perfection? Well. Um, we understand that because the world is generous and as you just said we are all connected to one another we realize that uh, to create harm for others to withhold from others uh, is stopping us from being who we really are stopping us from fully entering into the joy of the world So we practice ethical conduct, which is really essentially non-harming, non-harming of ourselves, 
non-harming of others. So I think all spiritual traditions, I mean, one way you can look at it is, point number one, a metaphysical commitment. You know, I believe in God or I believe in the spirit or whatever it is, the path. Point number two, because of that, I undertake some discipline of morality. I don't hurt others. I don't uh, intoxicate myself. I don't steal and so on. You know, all moral codes up until really lately, the last century or so, all came from some deeper belief in something more than the material world. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, yeah, and so and Dharma. Yeah, I was saying, and Dharma, you know, the, that it, that profound interconnection that you yes, yes. began with, and that, you know, with, in yoga, of course, ahimsa is our first, um, exactly. that is the, the greatest Dharma, that recognition all, that, all you know. All morality we, flows from ahimsa. Yeah, we can't um, harm another without harming our own self, is sort of the, yeah, the great harming, pointer. To harm, yeah, to harm others is to, is to misunderstand uh, you know, if I'm selfish and I and I disrespect others, I'm I'm miss, missing who I am and what the world is. I'm I'm narrowing down my vision so small that the result of that is is pain and suffering for myself and others. And and morality is opening up my vision and having harmony with the world and with others. Mm. And there is some restraint. You know, it's not as if uh, it's only. Uh, openness it's there is some restraint involved because my selfishness continues and I have to recognize my selfishness for what it is and sometimes if I have a selfish impulse I have to say no I, I've got to restrain that maybe maybe I really feel like doing this selfish thing I really want to my selfishness compels me to it but I am committed to a path of ethical conduct so here I restrain myself and, and in a sense, that's we're back to where imagination comes in. Um, it's like seeing the potentials in either direction, right? Yes. Understanding a bigger picture than just what I desire in this moment. Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what is our, what is our higher desire? Um, so, Norman, we're just getting close to the end of the hour, and so I, I want to just open this last couple of minutes um, to ask you. If you have any specific um, inspiration, I mean, you've given us a lot this morning already, but anything that you'd like to say about imagination during this time, um, what you'd like to leave us with? Well, many people uh, are sheltering in place at home. And so uh, you have time to think about devoting an hour a day to the cultivation of your imagination. So I think it would be worthwhile to think to yourself, how can I do that? How can I give myself an hour a day to cultivate my imagination? Can I do it through meditation practice? Can I do it through a sky gazing and walking in nature, looking at trees? Can I do it through reading that great novel or book of poetry that I've had on my shelf that I've never had time for, uh, how can I cultivate an imaginative heart mm. of altruism and love 
during these days? How can I make use of this time instead of seeing it as a time of deprivation when I can't do all the stuff I want to do? How can I make it into a time of advantage? How can I uh, feel like the world is giving me a gift here and I must make use of it? So I think for everybody to think about that and decide whether that's a good idea or not for you. And if it is, how will you how will you realize it? Mm. Well, thank you so much. That's a beautiful gift. Um, and certainly, you know, to recognize that our imagination is at play all the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, so, you know, we have the potential to imagine the worst. Um, and we also have the potential to cultivate uh, what you have pointed us to this morning as the imaginative heart um, mm-hmm. and to find time, you know, to make time for it as a practice, which is uh, what your your book is full of beautiful practices, um, ideas of ways to cultivate these six perfections and to um fearlessly approach the bodhisattva path, um, that it is not uh, just for those special ones, but it is a a path that is open and that is so critical for our time. Um, You've been listening to the Yoga Hour, and it's been my deep pleasure to share this time with you and our guest today, uh, Norman Fisher, Zen Buddhist priest, former co-abbot, and now senior Dharma teacher at the San Francisco Zen Center. And they're doing things uh, online, and I'm sure you can find out about that through their website. And you can get uh, Norman's book. Um, it's available on Kindle and uh, other uh, avenues like that. The world could be otherwise. Imagination and the Bodhisattva. A path. So I've been reading it. I've also been listening to it on Audible, and Norman himself is reading it. So you can uh, feel like he is uh, accompanying you on your walk. Thank you so much, Norman, for joining me today on the Yoga Hour. Thank you, Reverend O'Brien. Wonderful to talk to you as always. Thank you. And uh, thanks to our Yoga Hour team, uh, my co-host, Dr. Laura Trujillo, and she's going to be back uh, next week with Martin Wecky and talk about uh, yoga and the brain. Thank you for being with us. Thanks to Unity. Thank you for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Are you ready to experience the rich interconnection of spirituality, orientation, and identity? If so, plan to attend Liberating Your Divine Identity, a retreat at Unity Village during Pride Month, June 9th to the 12th. This soul-filled retreat is facilitated by LGBTQIA plus Unity Ministers with workshops and ceremonies to cultivate a deeper awareness of our spiritual nature. Register at unityvillage.org forward slash divine 2022 